today's reading is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And I'll just read it this time. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Today we've come to the letter to the church in Thyatira. Jesus has been dictating letters to John for him to write to seven different churches on a circuit in what we now know as as Turkey. And today we've come to the smallest town on that circuit, and yet they're the ones who get the longest letter. So let's set the scene of Thyatira. The town of Thyatira wasn't wasn't a particularly significant sort of a place. In fact, the only thing it really had going for it was it was on the road to somewhere else. Um, So the easiest place to build a road has always been to follow the flatter ground of the river valleys and Thyatira was situated on the Hermas River which led to Pergamum 51 kilometres away. And so that was where the road got built, past where Thyatira is on its way to the Pergamum. And what we know about Thyatira itself is very little because it was so insignificant. But evidence from archaeology tells us that there was really only two major industries there. One of these industries was trading because it was on a major trade route. Um, And one of the things that we know it traded in was purple dye, which was a local product of Thyatira. It was very rare and very expensive. Um, In fact, in, in Acts, we read about a lady from Thyatira, and her name was Lydia, And we're told in Acts that she was a trader of purple cloth. Um, But it was very rare, purple dye, back in those days. In fact, it's it's highly likely that the purple robe that they dressed Jesus in when he was crucified had come from the region of Thyatira, because that was about the only place that manufactured it. Anyway, if you weren't involved in trade, the only other major employer in town was the military garrison. 
and it was stationed there to protect the trade route and essentially to hold off invaders long enough so that Pergamum down the road could get ready to protect itself. So Thyatira was sort of like a sacrificial town. Um, So the, the military were there and if somebody came to invade, they would hold them there long enough for the, for the more significant town, Pergamum, to get itself ready. And then, once they were ready, they would withdraw from Thyatira, let the enemies have it, and, and defend the more important place. So Thyatira didn't really have a lot going for it. But there was one important fact that archaeologists have uncovered. For such a small and insignificant town, Thyatira had a very high concentration of trade guilds. Now, what's a trade guild, I hear you ask? Well, if you can think of a militant trade union and a chamber of commerce rolled into one, you've got something like a trade guild, right? And so there would be a trade guild for the traders in purple dye. There'd be a trade guild for workers in bronze. There'd be a trade guild for this and a trade guild for that. And essentially what that meant was unless you were a member of that trade guild, there was no way that you were allowed to work in that industry and there was no way that you were allowed to trade your product of that industry. So it would be like trying to take up shearing 40 years ago here in Australia without being a card-carrying member of the AWU. Or it'd be like using non-union labour to get your shearing done and then send your wool off to the wool stores and expect them to handle it. It it just wouldn't happen. So, why am I telling you all this? What relevance does this have to the church in Thyatira? Well, a fair bit. If you're not a member of a trade guild, you can't work and you can't trade. That means you barely survive. But if you are a member of a trade guild, then you have to attend its regular dinners. And at these dinners, an animal would be sacrificed to some heathen god. And then you would also grace, thanking that god for the food. And then you'd eat the meat that had been dedicated to that god. And then after the wine had flowed freely, these trade guilds were well known for descending into something akin to what we might recognise as a rural Queensland BNS ball. Um, but probably without the overdone utes doing circle work on the flat. Um, These were a place where all restraint would be thrown out and it would descend into something resembling a drunken orgy. And as we discovered last week, as we studied the letter to the church at Pergamum, the Gentile church, right, non-Jewish Christians, which most of us here would be, Non-Jewish Christians had been constantly warned by the apostles, look, you don't have to keep all of our Jewish rules and regulations, but this we do want you to do. Abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols and abstain from sexual immorality. And these trade guild dinners were pulling them into both of these. And for us as Christians today, when it comes to a sort of function that draws people into these sorts of sins, we really should very much question whether we should ever be part of them. So that's set the scene. That's, that's what the situation we believe is in Thyatira. Now let's look at the reading. And I guess we'll begin at the beginning. Once again, Jesus begins this letter by describing himself. He says, the words of the Son of God. By the way, this is the only place in the whole of the book of Revelation where Jesus describes himself as the Son of God. And it's significant that he does it here because later on in this letter, 
he's going to be quoting Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 is written about the Son of God. Okay, so right here at this point, Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God. Later on, when I'm quoting Psalm chapter 2, you're going to be identifying what it's saying about me. Okay? But we'll get to that shortly. He then continues to describe himself as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. With his eyes, Jesus can see everything. Nothing escapes his judgment. And with his holy, powerful feet, he will trample whatever is ungodly. So what does Jesus have to say about this church in Thyatira? Well, normally, we, when we think about the church in Thyatira, and it's already been introduced here, and, and as we read the reading, a lot of it is to do with judgment. And so we might straight away, ooh, terrible stuff at the church in Thyatira. But that's to ignore, ignore what he says right at the start, start. There's some really good stuff happening at this church in Thyatira. There is a lot of good here. He says, I know your works. All right, The good things that we do please Jesus very much. Don't ever get so fixated on the whole grace versus works thing that you begin to feel that Jesus doesn't want us to be doing any good works. What a load of nonsense that would be. When Jesus looked with his eyes of fire at the church in Pergamum, this is what he saw. He saw their love. He saw their faith. He saw their service. He saw their patient endurance. <sighs> Nearly swallowed a fly. <sighs> and he said to them, your latter work succeed the first. Now that, my friends, is a very rare quality. Have you ever noticed that sometimes at church, you know, it'll start out strong and the people have a new vibrant love for God and, and they all begin with these new endeavours to serve God in any way that they can, but then over time it loses its momentum and a few arguments happen within the church and, the, and their love grows cold and, and the church loses its passion for mission and, and it all falls into a maintenance mode where we're just about our own existence And what has begun as an exciting new vision for serving God gives way to ho-hum, ordinary old, every day. I've still got my faith. I'm saved. That's all that matters. But I'm not really on fire for God. A, a friend of mine calls that becoming a stodgy Christian. And I like that term, becoming a stodgy Christian. Um, and when there's enough of these stodgy Christians in a fellowship... That can become the nature of, the, of that whole church. Uh, but that wasn't the character of the church in Thyatira. They loved. They were full of faith. They were busy serving. They were holding on to their faith. And rather than Christianity becoming old, boring and stodgy, their faith was vigorous and getting more and more vigorous every day as it went on. Now, this is a picture of a church in town who really cares for their community it's a church that hasn't grown tired. It's a church that love each other's company and they love their neighbour as themselves. Now that to me sounds like a great church. Would you like to be part of a church like that? Yeah, great church. And I hope you value these things because Jesus does. As we get to know Jesus more and more, he doesn't want us slacking off and falling into the old mundane stodgy Christianness. 
It's a good thing for us to grow in faith. It's a good thing for us to grow in our love. And it's a good thing for us to grow in our service. But that wasn't all that Jesus could see when he looked at that church in Thyatira with his eyes of fire. This is where the judgment bit comes in. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. In many segments of the Christian church today, a very much ignored gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of prophecy. Now, from what I've observed, I believe there are two very common errors that the church can fall into when it comes to the gift of prophecy. The first area is where we give it too much prominence. It's when people come to expect a word from God, a personal word from God to them at their own demand. And when people in that church have, who, have, who invite along or have in their congregation people who they recognise as prophets, instead of those prophets sometimes saying, no, sorry, God isn't giving me anything for you today, um, they feel they have to perform especially if we have a visiting prophet comes to visit and, and it's advertised and we've got a prophet coming. God's going to have to come and God's going to have to talk to people. And, and so everybody comes along expecting a word from God to them. And it's like that person has to provide a word. And there are many statements made today in the name of prophecy claiming to be the words of the Lord that are not prophetic words from God at all. Sometimes it, it comes in the form of cold reading where a vigilant eye can tell something about somebody um, by just picking up telltale signs. Uh, sometimes people can be so general in what they say that it can apply to just about anyone. And sometimes words claiming to be from God are actually a deceptive lie from the devil. And so these are possible dangers of prophecy and probably and common occurrences. And because of the dangers, the second error that many churches fall into is they throw the gift of prophecy out altogether and say, right, all, you know, if this is all happening so much, we can't trust it ever and we won't have anything to do with it. But the New Testament scriptures are so very clear. The gift of prophecy is a very important gift for the Christian church. And the dangers can simply be dealt with by the whole church assessing the words of the prophet to determine whether what they are saying is from God or whether it is not. And that is what should have been happening at that church in Thyatira, but it evidently had not. There's a woman there named Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, but she's not a prophet of God at all. We can tell this by what she's been teaching. A prophetic word from God will never, ever be in conflict with his written word. How could a word from God, how could a word be from God if it's leading people into sexual immorality and into idolatry? What a nonsense. And so this woman, this false prophetess, Jezebel, who is she? Well, firstly, um, I'm going to say this, which might surprise you. 
it is unlikely, possible, but unlikely that her name is Jezebel. Certainly nobody from a Jewish background would ever, ever name their baby girl Jezebel because the name Jezebel was a proverbial name for wickedness. Um, that would be like one of us naming our little baby boy Adolf. We, we just wouldn't do it, would we? Okay. The darkest period in Israel's history was when King Ahab married a heathen princess by the name of, anybody guess? Jezebel. Okay. And together they ruled over Israel. And at Jezebel's coaxing, Ahab rejected God and began to worship Baal, Jezebel's God. And, and this was a dreadful time in Israel's history. It was a time of child sacrifice, dreadful injustice, spiteful murder, the persecution of God's prophets, and ultimately it led to the total ruin of Israel. And so the name Jezebel to Israel had become the personification of evil. By the way, I hope nobody's name or second name here is Jezebel and, and feels that I'm, I'm having a dig at you. That's just the way the name's being used here, okay? And Jezebel called, her, called herself a prophetess. And obviously people had been listening to her and they had been getting led astray by her. She led people into idolatry and into sexual immorality. And this is why the scriptures warn us so often and so clearly to watch out for false prophets. By the way, um, for those who believe that the gift of prophecy is gone, well, why are we constantly warned to watch out for false prophets? If, there is, if there's no prophecy at all, well, it's easy to tell a false prophet. The thing is, the gift of prophecy is a gift of the Spirit, but we are warned to watch out for false prophets and false teachers. Just like Neil's story there, um, if Neil was the person who told you, lollies are good for you, breakfast, lunch and dinner and any time in between, would some of you find that as good news? Some of you would find that as good news. Now, the thing is, a false prophet will always tell us what our itching ears want to hear. Right? A false prophet will give us a new word from God, which they say will help us to see things a bit differently. And the whole time, they're leading us astray. There's a phrase in this letter about those who have not followed Jezebel. And it refers to them as those who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, now that's a very strange phrase. What does it mean? Well, we can't be sure, but, but this explanation I'm about to give you makes sense to me. Something a false prophet will often do is make you feel that they are providing you a service by taking you deeper into the things of God. They might be showing you something that you've never heard and never known about God before, and so you feel that it's taking you deeper. And they'll sometimes promote it by saying, this is deeper stuff than what you've ever been taught. This, this is a new thing that God wants you to learn. This is a new freedom that God wants you to have. And they might say something along the lines of, 
What you've been getting taught up until now is, well, that's all that old and outdated. God is always revealing more of himself. Or they might say, God has given us other sources of wisdom and authority, you know, and we can learn from these as well. He wants us to use our minds. He wants us to look for things ourselves. And the whole time they'll be telling you, this is going deeper into God. And those other people, you know, those other people who don't accept our teaching, we oh, well, their faith is just very shallow. Right? So the false prophet will be marketing his approach as the deep things of God. But they're not the deep things of God at all. It's from Satan. Now, how does this play out in the church today? I just want to give you one example. There is a movement in some churches today, mostly in mainline denominations, uh, called, by themselves of course, they give themselves this name, not everybody else, progressive theology or progressive Christianity. Um, This is a movement that decides which parts of the Bible it'll believe and which parts it won't. It's a movement which seeks what it calls wisdom from many places other than the Bible, such as philosophy, science or other religions. Um, Some of you may have heard of a bloke by the name of Bishop Shelby Spong. He is one of the main head figures of this movement. Um, And I've spoken with and argued against a number of people who follow this teaching, and they all have one thing in common that I've noticed. In their eyes, they feel that they have been enlightened. They believe that they're the ones who can see things clearly And that they have a deeper understanding of God. Whereas people like me, and hopefully people like you, they would see as being caught up in a childhood fairy tale. You know, to believe all of that nonsense. You know, that's just childish, they would say. And a very common phrase that I've heard many of them use is, I no longer believe what I was once taught in Sunday school. That's for children's fairy tales. We've now matured, we're adults, and God expects us to think better than that. And one of the products of the liberal theology and progressive theology movements that I've noticed is a very loose ethic where it comes to sexual immorality and when it comes to an acceptance of other gods. These movements will, will teach you that you don't have to get married before you have sex. That's just old and outdated. And they make the emphasis on something that they call right relationships rather than on marriage between one man and one woman. And so there isn't any surprise that the whole same-sex marriage bandwagon is flowing out of liberal and progressive theology movements. And the other thing that, that I often hear them teaching is, you know, you know, God can reveal himself in any form of religion. You know, you can look to other religions and find God. And so they believe that they're the ones who are going deeper, but the whole time their faith is getting shallower and shallower until it's not of Christ at all. Anyway, let's move on. I said earlier that even though the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira were facing similar issues, there was a significant difference. And here it is. At the church in Pergamum, they hadn't reached judgment yet. They were being warned to repent 
of idolatry, they're being warned to repent of sexual immorality before the time of judgment came. Whereas Jezebel had already been warned. That warning has happened earlier and she's refused to listen to it and now her time of judgment has arrived. Verse 21 says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. I don't know exactly what all of that means. It doesn't look good, does it? You don't need me to tell you that that is talking about judgment, do you? She's been given time to repent but she didn't. And so this false prophetess is going to suffer what looks to be a severe illness that will probably lead to her death. But the good news is, the good news is those who have been led astray by her, they're not being judged just yet. They still have time to repent. And if they don't repent it appears that death is the end for them as well. Now that's very harsh judgment. On a personal note, I find it uh, really difficult to preach on this passage without sharing a uh, significant personal experience of mine. I used to be a minister in a certain denomination and that denomination allowed teaching like Jezebel's to be taught within that church. And that teaching was opening up the path to allow all sorts of sexual immorality within the church. It had already decided at the very highest level of the church that being a practicing homosexual wasn't a problem, was no barrier to being a minister in that church. And they were just then, at that point, beginning the discussion of, about whether or not they should marry same-sex couples. And for many years, I believe that the Lord had given me a direction to be in that church and to preach God's truth in the midst of a church that were allowing God, uh, the devil's lies and to call that church to repentance and to turn back to God. And I'd been doing that. Um, I'd gotten involved in, in whatever levels of the church meetings I could to try and get it to return to, to righteous um, positions. But then in the space of a week, the Lord began speaking to me through the scriptures, and I believe he was saying, it's time to go. So that had sort of begun on the Monday, and then on the Thursday night, I read a letter from the moderator telling people not to be too concerned about the proposal regarding same-sex marriage. And she concluded that letter with the, by saying that we should celebrate the fact that we're in a church who are willing to discuss these big issues. So I went to bed having read that thinking, no, I can't celebrate that. And then the next morning in my daily Bible reading, where I was up to was this letter to the church in Thyatira. 
And it talked about this church that had a lot going for it, which I believe the church I was in did have a lot going for it. But then it said, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who leads my people into sexual immorality. And as I continued to read it, I believe God was saying to me, the time for preaching in this place is finished. The time for judgment has come. And so with a great deal of pain and broken relationships, we obeyed God and and we left that denomination. Now that's just a personal story of how God has used this reading to convict me of something in my life. The church in Thyatira, it had a very clear option before them to either follow Jezebel's so-called deeper things and to do her works or to repent of her works and to keep God's works. This church had, had that very clear decision to make. Are we going to continue on doing this or are we going to repent of that and do what God wants us to do? And ultimately those who... Don't repent. Their judgment ends in death. But what about those who do repent? You, you know the, the gospel is, means good news, don't you? It's not all bad news here. What about those who do repent? Well, this is an amazing blessing that we learn here. And this is where Jesus quotes Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 talks about the Son of God. Jesus has already said, I'm the Son of God. And then the psalm goes on to talk about how he'll rule them with an iron rod and, and how earthen pots are broken to pieces. All right? This is a picture of when Jesus returns, he will be the king of ultimate power and authority. Now, you know the saying, um, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. You, you've heard that saying? You haven't heard that one? Okay. It, I can't, some famous philosopher said it. Um, All right, giving a king absolute power and authority, oh, that sounds terrible. That actually sounds dangerous. But you know, there is a king you can trust with absolute power and absolute authority, and that's Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and because of what he is like, he is full of love and mercy and righteousness. He will be the best ruler that you could ever imagine. We don't want to have less powerful rulers. We just want to have good rulers. And how wonderful it'll be that Jesus will have all rule and reign and all evil will be dealt with and punished and thrown away. But here in this letter, Jesus takes this promise a bit further than what the psalm does. Jesus also promises that those who overcome, right, those who are faithful to him to the end, those who keep doing his works to the end, those who repent of what Jezebel's been doing will be ruling with him. Did you know that? Did you know that we, if we remain faithful, will be ruling with Jesus Christ in his new kingdom? He says to him, right, to the one who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. And so right here, we're still right at the start of Revelation. We're only in chapter 2. But even right here at the beginning, we're getting a little glimpse of how it all ends. 
when history's completed and evil is dealt with and the new heavenly city has descended and it's all part of this new kingdom of God. And if we go all the way forwards to Revelation chapter 21, it says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Right? Jesus is the son of God, therefore he has authority to rule. But by the end of Revelation, we're going to discover we become sons of God and we are included in his rule and his reign. And then Jesus says, and I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Venus? Cool. I get to have a planet. Is that what he's talking about? No. Jesus is the morning star. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus describes himself as the morning star. How's that for deeper things of God, eh? No false prophet can ever take us that deep. No progressive theology or progressive Christianity will ever take us that deep. No other God and no other teaching can ever take us that deep. I, I get goosebumps when I think about this, that the depth that God draws the faithful in to his very existence and his rule and his reign. That the fact that we'll be in the very presence of Jesus Christ himself and that the Lord God Almighty chooses to call us his sons. What a wonder. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, how amazed we are to stand in your presence. How wonderful you are and how good and how merciful that you would come to us and die for us that we might be sons of God. And Lord, forgive us for the things that we do that put this in jeopardy. Lord, help us to guard against any false prophet who would lead us astray from your good purposes. Let us hold on to what is true and may you lead us into the depth of your plan and purpose. And Lord, we repent of the works of Jezebel that lure us from you, especially the lures to other gods and sexual immorality. Lord, help us to never tolerate such false teaching and to hold fast until you come. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.